From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. Welcome. I'm Kelly Knoyer. Thank you for joining us. Gen X. It sounds like the mystical substance that created the Powerpuff Girls. But Professor Utonium accidentally added an extra ingredient to the concoction, Chemical X. Thus, the Powerpuff Girls were born! But no one around here thinks that Gen X will give them superpowers. The chemical is one of thousands that falls into the category of PFAS. That's per- and polyfluoralkyl substances. PFAS didn't exist anywhere on the planet until 3M invented them in the 1940s. And now, some form of PFAS can be found in the blood of nearly every human on Earth. The Cape Fear River's PFAS contamination is one of the first things I found out about when I moved to Wilmington last year. I've now conducted dozens of interviews with experts, politicians, and activists who have dealt with this problem. I also started drinking filtered water for fear of the exposure. Later on this hour, we'll look at what's being done about PFAS and why activists and scientists don't think it's enough. We'll also hear from a whistleblower who says DEQ knew about this chemical in the water in the early 2000s, but failed to act on it. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's start at the beginning. What is this stuff, and where does it come from? Well, PFAS mainly used to be manufactured as just a few legacy chemicals, PFOS and PFOA. These ancestors of the modern PFAS are no longer made, but they were used in everything from nonstick pans to stain-resistant carpet and furniture, along with food packaging. But health studies in the early 2000s found that the manufacture of these chemicals led to some very severe health problems in residents around the manufacturing plants, especially those who drank contaminated water. Most of the information that we have from human health effects have come from multiple studies of different human populations. That's Jamie DeWitt, a toxicology professor at Eastern Carolina University. She told me about a study done in West Virginia and Ohio. It was the basis of the movie Dark Waters. You know, the film where Mark Ruffalo plays an intrepid lawyer facing down the big bad guy, DuPont. They're hiding something. At DuPont, better living through chemistry. It's our DNA. Well, it's a true story. That lawyer, Rob Balat, successfully sued to force DuPont to study the health effects of its legacy chemicals. He was representing a farmer who had seen over 100 of his cattle die near the West Virginia plant. The resulting study came out well after the farmer and his wife had both died of cancer. But when it did come out in 2011, it showed a probable link between PFOS, PFOA, and several health problems. From that study and then from other epidemiological studies, scientists have determined that there are links between exposure to certain PFAS and human health outcomes. These include pregnancy-induced hypertension and preeclampsia, suppression of responses to vaccines, signs of liver disease, signs of increased cholesterol, uh, decreases in birth weight, and then an increased risk of certain types of cancer. Some that have been identified are kidney and testicular, but there are emerging data to suggest linkages to prostate, bladder, and breast cancers. So PFOS and PFOA contribute to several severe health effects. After that 2011 study came out, DuPont stopped manufacturing those chemicals in Parkersburg, West Virginia. Instead, it spun off the PFAS arm of its business into a company called Chemors, which still operates today, in West Virginia and in North Carolina. Chemors stopped making PFOS and PFOA, but they've continued with relatives of those chemicals, like Gen X. The North Carolina Chemors plant is situated upriver from Wilmington in Fayetteville. 
It's been there since the 1970s, dumping significant amounts of Gen X into the river. And it's still in operation even as lawsuits have forced the company to provide bottled water to the surrounding community and implement significant hazard mitigation. The residents of the region didn't even know their water was contaminated until 2017, when the Wilmington Star News broke the story. North Carolina State University researcher Detlef Kanapi had found that the drinking water of a quarter million people was contaminated with a chemical that, at the time, utilities couldn't filter out, and it generated outrage and activism in the community. DEQ Secretary Michael Regan had just started his job when the news broke. Here he is, speaking about the experience at an event in October of last year, in his capacity as the new administrator of the EPA. But almost immediately, I was confronted with the most complex pollution challenge that I'd faced as secretary. We had all given great thought to how to combat the impacts of climate change. We thought, thought along and hard about how we deal with environmental justice. We even had a plan for dealing with coal ash. But Gen X, Gen X was a startling discovery. While some other PFAS are linked to negative health outcomes, Gen X is still relatively untested. Environmental epidemiologist Dr. Jane Hoppen has conducted blood testing in the Cape Fear region since 2017. One of the first questions that was most important is, like, when can people flood? And so we were able to test for 10 new fluoroether chemicals, as well as 10 historically used or legacy PFAS. And so what we found was that we could not detect Gen X in any person that we measured. But unfortunately, we did identify at least three brand new chemicals in the blood of everybody that we tested, almost everybody. It's more difficult to link Gen X to health outcomes than other PFAS because it has a relatively short half-life in the human body. While other PFAS bioaccumulate, Gen X has a half-life of just 81 hours in the human body. So there are other tools that environmental epidemiologists can use. And the most important tool is something that relates to exposure reconstruction. So this is not different from how we might characterize your smoking history. We ask people, uh, have you ever smoked? When did you start smoking? When did you stop smoking? How many cigarettes a day did you smoke? So we can use that to estimate how many pack years someone has smoked in their lifetime. Um, it's, it's much more complicated for environmental exposures. Still, what science is available is damning. In 2018, the Environmental Protection Agency came out with a toxicity assessment stating that Gen X animal studies have shown health effects in the kidney, blood, immune system, developing fetuses, and especially in the liver following oral exposure. The data are suggestive of cancer. According to the EPA, that means there's evidence of cancer from Gen X exposure, but only in one species and in one study. You can find more from the EPA's statement at whqr.org. Back in 2017, everyone in Wilmington and the surrounding area was focused on the mysterious Gen X. But it's not the only PFAS polluting the Cape Fear River. Here's activist Beth Marcasino. A big thing that nobody is talking about is the combined effect of all of these chemicals together. And a lot of times people bring attention to Gen X because it's this name that really sticks out. But we have over 50 perfolinated chemicals in the Cape Fear River. And even though some of those might be at lower levels, when we combined all of them together, it's like, what is that doing to our health? 
Marcosino became an activist because of Gen X contamination. The stuff is correlated with birth defects, though causation hasn't been proven. The mystery is painful for Marcosino, who lost her son due to birth defects six months before the community learned about the contamination. And they knew that my son was dying, so I had to have a cesarean. And it was like, not just your regular, like, cesarean. They had to cut me both ways to prevent me from bleeding out. And it's the most horrific thing that I've ever encountered in my life. Although she doesn't have definitive proof, Marcosino believes Gen X had something to do with the tragic loss. Losing him, you know, not being able to have, you know, I can't have any more children, it's... It's rough because I did. I wanted to have a ton of kids, you know. <laughs> what happened to my son is what really drives me um, in the water contamination. Chemours has had to cut down on its Gen X emissions thanks to a lawsuit, which we'll get into later this hour. But to Marcosino, that's not enough. There are dozens and dozens of different PFAS in the Cape Fear River, and she wants to know what that means for her health. And although the Cape Fear region is particularly vulnerable thanks to the Fayetteville plant, that's actually not the only source of PFAS pollution in the river. Emily Sutton is the Haw River Keeper, and the Haw is a tributary of the Cape Fear above Fayetteville. It's one of the most contaminated rivers in the country when it comes to PFAS. The levels at, in the raw water at the drinking water intake, the total PFAS was over 1,200 parts per trillion. So you compare that to the EPA's recommendation for just two, PFO and PFAS, of 70 parts per trillion, which has you know, been widely criticized for being too high. Those are pretty concerning levels, and that's after dilution. That PFAS isn't coming from a known chemical plant discharge either. So when we started looking at sources upstream, um, some of the surface water that was directly under these effluent discharge pipes at wastewater treatment plants were in the tens of thousands of PFAS parts per trillion total. Sutton says the contamination in the Haw River is largely coming from municipal wastewater and likely from landfills. In our case, we take Burlington, for example, they take landfill leachate from two separate landfills in the county. So those landfills have this concentrated leachate, and the things that go in landfills are often filled with PFAS. Everything is filled with PFAS. So uh, we have really high concentrations of that leachate going back into our wastewater streams, wastewater effluent that isn't being treated for these compounds. She's right. PFAS is in everything. Almost anything that repels water likely is made with PFAS chemicals of one sort or another. Your nonstick pans, your rain boots and raincoat, your carpet, your furniture, your sporting equipment, and even your food wrapping paper. All these things are made with PFAS, and once they're thrown in the dump, that PFAS leaches out. So Wilmington's PFAS problem isn't just from Fayetteville. It's from the industrial and household waste draining into the river through landfills, and potentially from undisclosed industrial sources being protected by municipalities upriver. So the burden of treating and removing these toxins need to be on the industry themselves and not the city. If the city continues to act as a shield of those industries because they are the ones holding the permit, they are the ones giving the pretreatment permit, then that's why they are the target of our lawsuits, of our litigation. But the city needs to put the onus onto the industries themselves to eliminate the problem at the source. Eliminating the problem at its source. 
That's something that a lot of activists want to see and something that seems at times impossible to achieve and at other moments finally within reach. Sutton's organization, the Ha River Assembly, sued the city of Burlington to make them investigate sources of PFAS and 1,4-dioxane contamination in the Ha. They've since identified the contamination sources within the city, and they're working with those companies to eliminate contamination at the industry level, rather than forcing water utilities to clean up the river after the fact. And they're now suing Greensboro to force similar action. Coming up next on the newsroom, what has been done to address PFAS so far? And what do activists and scientists want to ultimately see happen? That's all coming up after this break. For WHQR Public Media, you're listening to The Newsroom. I'm Kelly Knoyer. Welcome. In this segment of the show, we'll get into the politics in North Carolina and how they've hamstrung regulatory actions related to PFAS, where other states have been able to act. But first, a history lesson on the big lawsuit. Back when the Cape Fear community found out about the Gen X in the water, residents demanded a stop to all pollution entering the river. The Department of Environmental Quality, under then-Secretary Michael Regan, revoked Kemore's wastewater permit in 2017. But in 2018, the Southern Environmental Law Center filed a lawsuit against both the DEQ and Chemwars, arguing that the DEQ should, quote, use its existing authority to require Chemwars to stop immediately all emissions and discharges of Gen X and chemically related compounds from its Fayetteville Works facility. The DEQ had filed its own lawsuits, but activists and the SELC at the time were frustrated by the slow pace. Reich Longest is a professor of environmental law at Duke University. My sense is, is that DEQ, North Carolina DEQ, was at the forefront of state agencies responding to these problems around the country. And I think in North Carolina, we can be rightly proud that they were able to get done what they were able to do. Ultimately, the DEQ, Chemours, the SALC, and Cape Fear River Watch signed a consent order in 2019, forcing Chemours to pay a $12 million fine and to install filters and scrubbers at its plant to prevent the emission of PFAS chemicals into the water, ground, and air. The company also has to pay for safe drinking water for area residents with contaminated wells and must continually monitor emissions. I think that the importance of the consent decree was to go ahead and quickly stop the hemorrhaging. The primary value of the consent decree was its speed, that is getting in place methods and mechanisms to stop the releases to the environment of these, um, of these chemicals and to do immediate uh, testing in the immediate vicinity so that we could understand the scope and scale of the release. Uh, there's sort of a hierarchy in any kind of cleanup regime in which we have to go by, and it is, you know, in this situation, very much an emergency hierarchy. The first is to stop the source leaking. To borrow that metaphor from Professor Longest, the consent decree has now stopped that hemorrhage, but there's still an awful lot of blood on the ground. Gen X is flowing into the Cape Fear River from contamination near the plant. Lee Ferguson of Duke University is the head of the PFAS testing network in North Carolina. You know, they're on a, a, a flowing you know, river on the Cape Fear, but the levels are actually have been changing relatively slowly. And that's because it's no longer a what you would call a point source input. Uh, now 
the groundwater around the Kimura's Faithful Works area is contaminated. So that actually is the source of, of a lot of that contamination. Cape Fear Public Utility Authority does regular PFAS monitoring and tested a total of 381 parts per trillion of PFAS in the river water in December. More recent tests are lower, 128 PPT, recorded in January. And it sounds like a tiny amount, but the EPA has established health advisory levels for legacy PFAS at a total of 70 parts per trillion. North Carolina set Gen X at 140 PPT, but based on recently released EPA data, the federal threshold could decrease to between 4 and 5 PPT. Here's CFPUA spokesperson Vaughn Haggerty. The amount of water in the river can affect it as well, and it, it goes the concentration will go up when the river level goes down because there's less water, right? And, you know, on the other side, it will go down if there's more water in there because more water, same amount of PFOS, lower concentration. Gen X recently has tested in a lower amount in the Cape Fear River, below the 140 parts per trillion threshold set by the state. And while CFPUA tests for many PFAS, its methods don't capture them all. Here's Dana Sargent, the executive director of Cape Fear River Watch. In terms of how many are in the Cape Fear River, uh, we think there are around 300 to 350 um, based on the fact that Chemours, the company that is responsible for the bulk of our pollution, um, was forced by consent order uh, to conduct what they call non-targeted analysis. When they did that, they found 257 unknowns, so to speak. Um, in that sampling. And prior to that, we already knew there were between 50 and 100 already known. So that's just what we think we know. Um, and, you know, one is enough. That non-targeted analysis is something a lot of scientists want to invest in. It's the best way of knowing what is in the water. Rather than just looking for specific things, scientists can instead look for everything in the water. Unknown contaminants would suddenly become known. And that's a frightening prospect for the chemical industry. One source told me the DEQ was seeking a custom mass spectrometer back in 2018, which would allow the agency to identify unknown compounds. But the legislature wouldn't do it. They got a different spectrometer instead. They could only look at known compounds. The metaphor he used is that it's like telling the cops they can only look at the suspects they've already fingerprinted. Sargent fought for the DEQ to get that funding for the mass spectrometer, but the legislature put the money elsewhere instead, to the North Carolina Policy Collaboratory. The NC Collaboratory funded by the state budget, um, it's great. We want science to be funded. Science needs to be funded. Um, the issue there is that it's not regulatory. You can't take that science and do anything to regulate with that science. The DEQ then has to duplicate all that science. So our, where's the funding for the DEQ then to duplicate that science? Because that didn't happen. The funding that year got stripped from the DEQ. The DEQ had requested funding for the proper equipment to sample PFAS, and they didn't get it. Um, it went to, instead to the collaboratory. And the collaboratory funding um, was supported by Senator Mike Lee at the time, and that was what made it into the budget. And if you if you look back and you can see actually the Chemours lobbyists in the news quoted as saying, uh, we don't want non-targeted analysis that was the equipment that the DEQ could have gotten, because that would open up a, quote, Pandora's box which, yes, we want the Pandora's box to be open. We need to know what's in our water supply, right? But that, that's, that's public knowledge, that the, the lobbyist was in the room, in the discussions on that issue. And obviously that's, that's wrong. 
Sargent is referencing a 2018 story from the news station WRAL, which uncovered that the chemical manufacturing lobby had succeeded in curtailing regulatory legislation. But Republican State Senator Michael Lee, whose district covers most of New Hanover County, stands by his choice to fund the collaboratory. The equipment and technology was already resident in the university system. And we as a state were not leveraging the experts. In some instances, uh, we were lucky because in North Carolina, we had the lead researchers in the world, um, literally within the triangle. And uh, originally, my bill was really limited to the UNC system. But after meeting with Lee Ferguson at Duke, why not bring in all the best brains, whether they're in a public universities or, or the private universities. So from a, a research and technology perspective, the collaboratory was the best to do it. Lee argues that the collaboratory was the best way to quickly get research on PFAS because universities already had some of the technology and a lot of the expertise. The DEQ, by comparison, would have needed a lot of ramp-up time, and it was an emergency in 2018. Still, the DEQ has to duplicate the collaboratory's testing if it wants to set enforceable limits of PFAS, and it hasn't done that yet. But Lee says it's as it should be. But I think what you find today um, is that DEQ and the collaboratory are working very closely together. The most recent state budget did invest in PFAS research at the DEQ. The legislature funded seven new positions, including five for an emerging compounds unit within the Division of Water Resources, and two positions intended to map PFAS statewide and determine different types of contamination and their sources. But back in 2018, the legislation on PFAS that did get passed was more narrow than a lot of environmentalists wanted. For one, it provided a different spectrometer than the one requested by DEQ, one able to identify only chemicals it's told to look for, not one that can identify a wider spectrum of compounds. That's how industry lobbyists succeeded in keeping the Pandora's box closed. Deb Butler is a state representative for New Hanover County. While she compliments legislators like Michael Lee from the Cape Fear region for efforts to address PFAS, she says it's not the same across the board. And I'll have to say that the members of my delegation have been more willing to um, put this at the front of their concern than uh, other legislators in other places. You know, the thing that is, is frustrating about it is that, as I said before, this is an all-hands-on-deck moment. And I, um, I have a lot to contribute in this arena. I'm, I'm a fairly good student of this issue. And, you know, it disappoints me that I have been kind of intentionally pushed to the side on some of these issues. Butler has introduced and sponsored several PFAS-related bills which have died in committee, even after passing initial readings. Last year, she sponsored House Bill 504, which would have banned the use, sale, and manufacture of PFAS. It passed its first reading, then died in the House Committee on Rules, Calendar, and Operations of the House. Other legislators, like Michael Lee, think an outright ban on PFAS is the wrong call, particularly since the EPA hasn't set drinking water limits on most PFAS yet. I think the first thing we need to do is determine what those levels are. And if we determine what the levels should be, what's safe, then I think the state should step up and do something sooner than the EPA because the EPA process is just going to take a while. And so if, if we see that we have the research there that provides that we've got some levels um, to go over, those levels uh, are going to be regulations that we, did, we need to implement. I think we need to do that. And in order to get that research, that was another reason why I really wanted to work with the collaboratory. But activists are suspicious about these kinds of delays. 
These so-called emerging contaminants have been in use since the early 2000s, and their predecessors began use 80 years ago. So why the delay? Activists like Dana Sargent blame industry lobbyists. Their support from the manufacturing lobby might be something that folks who are interested in this issue uh, should look into and, and determine whether or not their elected officials are working for them or if they're working for the people. Um, and so, you know, the manufacturing industry here has a very strong lobby. The Manufacturers Alliance PAC, which represents companies like Chemours, dumped more than $15,000 into North Carolina's politics in 2016 alone, with another $12,000 in contributions in 2018, the year after the Gen X story broke. North Carolina doesn't keep its campaign donation records in a clearly legible way, so it's unclear where exactly all this money went. But advocates are suspicious that it played a role in legislation after the Gen X story broke. North Carolina has done a lot more on the research side of PFAS rather than dealing with enforcement or regulation. Other states, by comparison, have done a much more effective job of regulating the substances. Grady McCauley is the policy director of the NC Conservation Network. You see states saying things like in Vermont or Massachusetts, the sum of six different perfluorinated compounds in this family shouldn't be over 20 parts per trillion, which is well below that 70 parts per trillion of the health value. McCauley says North Carolina has been more willing to commit to legislation on specific chemicals, like Gen X and AFFF, which is a carcinogenic chemical used in firefighting foams. But it hasn't been as willing to do blanket legislation on the entire chemical family. Jeff Gisler is a senior attorney with the Southern Environmental Law Center, and he says legislators are wary of pushing industry out for fear of losing job creators. The regulators will say, if we crack down on these discharges and the state next door doesn't, or the town next door doesn't, then my industry is going to pick up and leave. And so whether that's true or not, I, I don't know, but it's, it's certainly a, a concern that is out there. And so we can't do this city by city or town by town or state by state. It has to be a nationwide commitment because it's already the nationwide law. It just hasn't been enforced. He's talking about the Clean Water Act, which hasn't been enforced to the full extent possible. I think most people don't realize that the goal of the Clean Water Act was not to set acceptable levels of pollution. It was to eliminate pollution altogether. The idea and the, the goal in the Clean Water Act is to eliminate all discharges by 1985. Enforcing that act to its full extent doesn't seem politically feasible currently. The EPA, according to reporting by The Intercept, has been infiltrated by many industry-friendly bureaucrats who push to approve all permits on new chemicals, regardless of danger. Some advocates hope that Congress will act to address PFAS, and some bills have been introduced. But another part of the federal government is on it. In October, the EPA announced a comprehensive national strategy to address PFAS and has moved forward with an official toxicity assessment for Gen X. It's a major shift from the EPA under former President Donald Trump, which largely ignored or denied all petitions related to PFAS regulation. Many credit North Carolina's own Michael Regan with that shift and applaud his efforts. But some activists say it still doesn't go far enough or fast enough. When we come back from the break, we'll dig into what the EPA has done in the past year under Michael Regan and how far it still has left to go. You're listening to The Newsroom on WHQR. Please stay with us. Thank you. 
Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm your host, investigative reporter Kelly Knoyer. Thank you for joining us. In this segment, you'll hear about how Michael Regan's experiences at the DEQ prepared him for the EPA and the similarities he's facing in his new position. Corruption, limited funding, and low morale have plagued both agencies, even while they both face down crises. This hour, we've been talking about PFAS, the forever chemical that contaminates the Cape Fear River. To recap, in 2018, Star News broke the story that a PFAS called Gen X was polluting the river. Activists sued the polluter ChemWars and the State Department of Environmental Quality to demand action. It worked, and the DEQ got on board with Michael Regan at its head. Now, Michael Regan has gotten a major promotion. He's the newest head of the Federal Environmental Protection Agency, and many in North Carolina hope he doesn't forget his home state now that he's in the big leagues. His experiences at the EPA have been tough so far, in ways that closely parallel his prior experience at NCDEQ. For one, his department was chronically underfunded and had been for years. As a result, insiders and outside observers say morale was low and staff struggled to keep up with the work. That was the circumstance that Michael Regan came into when he became the DEQ secretary in 2017. And less than a year later, the crisis of PFAS pollution in the Cape Fear River became public knowledge. Here's Todd Miller with the NC Coastal Federation. I think he worked with what resources he had been allocated and began to build back the agency. There was more than just problems with money. During the previous administration, there was a lack of morale <laughs> among agency people. And I think the whole atmosphere in terms of working conditions and things improved dramatically with his leadership. I mean, there had been huge cuts to the agency budget over the previous four years. And since 2008, there have been major declines in the support that they were getting to run their do their business and, and a lot of regulatory reform activities that further restricted some of their enforcement abilities. Because state budgets in North Carolina didn't change for several years, Regan found himself managing an underfunded, demoralized agency in the midst of a public health and environmental crisis. But there are darker allegations than simple underfunding. Tom McKinney is a former DEQ inspector in the Division of Air Quality. I was the inspector for the DuPont plant almost 20 years ago. And actually, it was an inspection in 2004 when the environmental manager for DuPont told me the scrubber systems for the plant were discharging this contaminated wastewater into their wastewater treatment plant. But the treatment plant was not an advanced treatment plant, so it was going directly into the river untreated. And it was, it was stunning to hear that. I mean, this is not XYZ fly-by-night chemical company. It's DuPont. And it's like, I can't believe this. This is going straight into the river. The DEQ has not responded to requests for comment about any of McKinney's claims. McKinney says he wrote up his inspection reports to the DEQ about the untreated wastewater. But right away, I could tell that there was a resistance in the Division of Air Quality to talking about what was happening at DuPont. And eventually there was a meeting between DuPont and the DEQ, which was called the Deaner at that time. And I was present at the meeting and the DuPont presentation was very misleading. It didn't talk about any of this new information. 
And so I pointed that out. I pointed out the way in which this is a very misleading presentation. And then the next day, I was booted off of all communications related to DuPont. And I was in a lot of hot water. There were bosses angry at me. McKinney says he ended up leaving the DEQ because of those pressures in 2006 and was shocked to find out the problem still hadn't been resolved by 2017. He came back to work at the DEQ in 2016 and looked at more documents around that time. And so I was looking through the databases trying to make sense of it. And it, over time, it became clear looking at the documents that the DEQ, the Division of Air Quality Management, They had not shared the information with EPA, as far as I could tell. They had not shared information with the communities down the river, as far as I could tell. They had not shared information with their science advisory board that was looking at Gen X and PFAS chemicals. And more and more, it looks like they may never have shared it with the other divisions. As McKinney told me, All it takes is one supervisor to derail red flags going all the way up to the top of the food chain. So Michael Regan walked into an underfunded, low-morale agency with leadership that listened a little too closely to chemical companies. And then a crisis blew up in his face. But a lot of people are fairly happy with how it eventually shook out. Here's Lee Ferguson of Duke University again. Getting back to, to Michael Regan, I think that he did what he could, given the resources he had available to him in order to address this problem. And I think, frankly, I'm very happy to see him take that knowledge and take that experience to the national stage as basically EPA administrator. I mean, in my mind, one of the best cases that could have happened where he learned what was happening with PFAS and emerging contaminants in drinking waters in this state. And now he's at a stage where he can actually make changes that are hopefully informed by that experience. The EPA is facing a PFAS crisis, just like North Carolina. The EPA has faced similar allegations of corruption and similar underfunding. Regan has said so himself in an event announcing the EPA PFAS roadmap in October of last year. As secretary, I knew this kind of challenge would require state and federal leadership. But in North Carolina, we were hindered by a General Assembly that has significantly weakened DEQ. Budget cut after budget cut. And at the federal level, an administration that was more concerned about undoing environmental laws than protecting the people. According to reports from Port City Daily, during a 10-year period from 2008 to 2018, the state cut funding by 34 percent to the DEQ, even as the state's population was growing. And today's EPA still has a smaller workforce than it did in 2017. As for the corruption... The Intercept's investigation, EPA Exposed, details numerous incidents where senior staffers stopped lower-level scientists from warning the public about carcinogens or denying permits for dangerous manufacturing practices. Reporter Sharon Lerner aired the concerns of some EPA whistleblowers in her investigation. They found that some managers, some other people who work at the agency were sometimes changing their findings, findings that, that chemicals presented a risk. And there was also sort of this pattern of pressure not to identify these things or to, if you identify them, downplay them. And in terms of the changes that were made to these chemical assessments, they were always to make the chemicals appear safer than they actually are and downplay the risks that were found in the science. Lerner says, as far as she knows, this problem is isolated to the new chemicals division. 
But that means any new chemicals coming to the market are going through a not-so-rigorous process. And that applies to forever chemicals, too. I think it is fair to hold EPA accountable. EPA has continued to approve PFAS. Since we've known about the toxicity, since we've understood that PFOA causes cancer, our Environmental Protection Agency has been approving additional PFAS. And even PFAS, for which the companies that manufacture them have sent in 8E reports, which are the reports I've mentioned that show that they present a substantial risk. The perfect example of this was the approval of Gen X to begin with, which is a chemical that uh, DuPont, which, you know, before it spun off Camorra's, created Gen X to replace PFOA when it understood the PFOA had been flagged as a health problem. And of course, now we know that it presents very much the same health problems and in some ways is more toxic. Well, the company had sent the EPA more than a dozen 8E reports, reports of substantial risk, that showed that Gen X had these same problems, that it caused cancer in lab animals. And it was approved anyway. Under Trump's EPA, the 8E reports Lerner is talking about stopped being publicly available. And that hasn't changed yet under Regan. An EPA spokesperson said the agency is, quote, committed to ensuring its decisions are free from unwarranted interference. Here's Professor Reich Longest again with a signature metaphor to explain the situation. He was a very good head of a team that might be thought of as a double A baseball team. And now he's gone to the majors. So it's the same game, but there's a lot more pressure. There's a lot more opposition and, you know, a lot more competition. And I think he's going to have to work within that realm and seems to be working well so far. Still, the DEQ at the time focused very heavily on chem wars, not on broader regulations. Some say that was a mistake and that the early focus on Gen X above all other PFAS pollution spent a lot of political willpower for not enough results. Those bigger reforms are what some activists are after these days, but they're not getting a lot of traction in the North Carolina legislature or at the DEQ. Chemours has been punished, its emissions regulated, but there's still significant levels of PFAS in the river, and not all of it is identified. Duke scientist Lee Ferguson says very few PFAS have received comprehensive health testing. There hasn't been enough work done in the laboratory on chemicals like that to be able to confidently predict toxicity, accumulation, and that sort of thing using computer models. There's a concept called the precautionary principle, which could solve a lot of these problems, and it's how the European Union manages new chemicals. Basically, chemicals can't be discharged into the environment unless they're proven safe. And if they are getting discharged, maybe we should at least require companies to disclose what's being dumped in the waterway. Here's Haw Riverkeeper Emily Sutton. To take a class approach to regulate PFAS, that would protect our surface waters and our communities who depend on it. That needs to happen at the state level. Right now, without legislation, DEQ can require notification and disclosure of all of these compounds in permits. And so DEQ should require disclosure of all of these PFAS compounds and one for doxing. How much is being discharged and into what water body? Once we have that information, then we know who to prioritize for eliminating the compounds at the source. But it will take agency prioritizing the health of the communities and the safety of our waters 
rather than industry. It's a frightening prospect. We don't know what we don't know, whether it's mystery chemicals or the unknown impact they may have on our health. Nobody is exposed to just one PFAS. That's Dr. Jane Hoppen, the lead researcher on the Cape Fear PFAS blood study. We'd like to know whether people exposed to GenX, whether the effects are similar to PFOA. And we probably need to understand the broad range of those chemicals. But I think because there's always going to be a new chemical out there, we need to think about how to regulate these chemicals as a mixture, even if they're only used one at a time in other settings. The specific PFAS in your blood may be different from your neighbors. You may have nonstick pans that they don't use, or perhaps you moved to the Cape Fear region more recently. The challenge is that every person in every community might have a different mix. That's why so many activists want to see PFAS regulated as a category, not just one at a time. It's a process that happens over and over again in the U.S., according to Lee Ferguson. Asbestos is an example where it was recognized how dangerous these materials were. They were banned. Okay? Cannot use asbestos in any scenario where we might be exposed to it anymore. And that was the right call. Okay? Replacements were developed. Okay? PCBs, another example, banned. Okay? Replacements. DDT, banned. Now we have replacements. PFAS has not been banned. There are voluntary phase-outs. PFOA, PFOS were voluntarily phased out before they could be banned. But there are no bans on PFAS production and use right now. And so does that mean that our society has somehow judged that their utility is such that we're willing to take the risk of human exposure? Or is it just that that decision has not been made yet? And I would say we're probably in the latter category. I think we are right now in the decision point that previous generations of scientists and regulators were at with things like PCBs and asbestos. I call it environmental whack-a-mole. A lot of activists are frustrated with recent EPA actions, which they say are going too slowly, despite Regan's insistence that he is on their side. In October, he announced a series of actions that will certainly move the ball forward on PFAS and had some strong words to go with that announcement. I think we've all about had enough. Enough is enough. It's time that we prioritize the American people's health over profits of big polluters. I want to go as far and as fast as we can to keep our families safe from these toxic chemicals. But activists like Dana Sargent say that's too slow. Many elements of the PFAS roadmap don't come online until 2024, and a lot of the earlier steps are research-focused or simply prevent new PFAS from coming to market. Yes, we should continue studying this stuff, but we need to stop the pollution, and we don't need any more data to do that, right? What we need is regulatory funding. The PFAS strategic roadmap is a comprehensive set of steps the EPA plans to take, ranging from research-based actions like publishing testing methods for types of PFAS to more regulatory actions like developing new health advisories. This spring, the EPA expects to publish health advisories for Gen X and PFBS, similar to the 70 PPT advisory that already exists for legacy PFAS. EPA will establish national drinking water regulations for PFAS chemicals under the Safe Drinking Water Act. And we're also moving to designate certain PFAS as hazardous substances 
under EPA's Superfund law. For years, the Superfund program has successfully protected American communities by requiring polluters to pay to clean up the hazardous waste, hazardous waste and pollution that they themselves have released in our environment. The drinking water standards for two legacy chemicals are set to come online in the fall of 2023, and the EPA is evaluating additional PFAS for similar regulations, and will consider regulating them as a group. But outside the legacy PFOA and PFOS, which industry has voluntarily phased out, these promises are vague. Some experts think Regan could go further. Here's Reich Longest again, speaking on the Toxic Substances Control Act. So you have all these new chemicals that are coming online, and there is a law in place that EPA could use to analyze those chemicals, get information about them, and regulate them. But they are so outnumbered and outfunded that the chemical industry is able to keep these chemicals going for years, sometimes decades, before any kind of cautionary note is brought. It's just like it was at the DEQ when Regan was there, he says. Do they have enough people to do the enforcement they need to do? I don't think there's any evidence to show that they have enough people. Their, their budgets have been cut even as the population of North Carolina has grown. So in real population terms on a per capita basis, their budgets have been cut significantly over the past 10 years. But the EPA does seem dedicated under Regan to addressing PFAS in the capacity that it can, including mitigation efforts, which would be necessary to get rid of the chemicals that are already in the environment. Activists want the U.S. to follow the European Union's footsteps with an all-out ban. That's coming to the EU next year for 200 different kinds of PFAS. But is the political willpower there to bring such a ban in the United States? Here's UNCW marine biologist Larry Cahoon. We banned leaded gasoline way back when. We have banned some number of the compounds because the science was clear. The harms were obvious. So we need to get the kinds of information about PFAS that we had to make those decisions. There's always going to be pushback, but you defeat that by having your, your science all lined up. And if it's not a full-out ban, then a limit to the discharges, as the EPA has suggested in the roadmap. So I would argue that what has happened with PFAS is a massive trespass. They have violated the property rights of everybody who's been downwind or downstream or a consumer of the water and other products um, from this area without our consent and without compensating for it. If we're serious about protecting property rights, that's where I would start, is to say, you keep your mess on your property and don't let it out. And if you don't like accumulating it there, well, you better figure out and pay for what it takes to get rid of that stuff once and for all. Just dumping your waste out there and forcing the cost onto unsuspecting others is just wrong. PFAS will be with us for a long time, our entire lifetimes for those of us who have accumulated the stuff in our blood over the years, and eons if scientists can't figure out how to destroy it. Currently, the wastewater from the Chemours plant in Fayetteville is being injected deep into the earth in Texas rather than being destroyed. It's too difficult to burn when the PFAS is accumulated in sludge water, so now that wastewater is being dumped in a backyard much further away, near Houston. Six truckloads of it a day, according to Chemours. Frank Leibfarth is a researcher at UNC Chapel Hill who has recently discovered a more effective water filter for PFAS. But he says future research will need to focus on destruction. A significant challenge with PFAS is its longevity. It just doesn't go away. So how can we destroy it and mineralize it back to fluorite, which is where we get fluorine uh, from in the future? So that's, I think, a huge challenge for the scientific community. Ideally, federal funding 
flows in that direction, right? Because that often motivates what scientists are interested in. If Michael Regan is right, and he's able to force companies to pay for environmental cleanups through the Superfund program, it will be an incredibly expensive venture. Here's NC Conservation Network Policy Director Grady McCauley. The writing's on the wall. Sooner or later, these chemicals are going to be officially listed as hazardous. And when they are, places that are contaminated with them will be triggered for cleanups under Superfund or under other programs. And so at this point, everybody who is using these chemicals is sitting on a time bomb of liability. And it makes sense to get rid of them, <laughs> to, to, to minimize their use and phase out their use. Chemors achieved net sales of $6.3 billion last year with a net income of more than $600 million. According to OpenSecrets.org, it has spent nearly a million dollars on lobbying in the 2022 cycle so far and $21,000 in political contributions. We'll see if that kind of spending can save them from the looming tide of cleanup costs if PFAS ever becomes Superfund eligible. These chemicals do last forever, and removing them from the environment entirely seems like an impossible prospect. For some, punishing the companies who caused this pollution would be satisfying in its own right, while others just want to have safe water to drink. Utilities in the Cape Fear region are trying to meet that demand by installing multi-million dollar filters against PFAS in Brunswick and New Hanover counties on the residents' dime. CFPUA is suing Chemwars to get them to pay. But the bigger question of responsibility on a global scale? Well, the ball is in Michael Regan's court. Thank you to my many guests, Jamie DeWitt, Jane Hoppen, Frank Leibfarth, Beth Marcasino, Todd Miller, Emily Sutton, Reich Longest, Dana Sargent, Michael Lee, Deb Butler, Larry Cahoon, Lee Ferguson, Grady McCauley, Tom McKinney, and Vaughn Haggerty. And thank you to everyone else who spoke to me about this story. Our editor for the newsroom is Ben Shockman. Our technical team is Ken Campbell and Jonathan Furnell. If you missed any part of the program, you can find it at whqr.org or find it as a podcast wherever you get podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Kelly Knoyer. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. Newsroom.